Hi there, guys. Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. In this episode, we'll take a look at the first story of Doctor Who, An Unearthly Child. Later, we'll talk about some trivia and behind-the-scenes information about this episode, as well as discussing the characters and our thoughts on the story as a whole. Before all that, though, I will hand over to Paddy for the story recap. Episode 1, An Unearthly Child. A policeman is doing his rounds and passes by the entrance to I.M. Foreman's scrapyard. The camera pans past and into the yard, and we are shown a collection of odds and ends, including an old-fashioned police call box. We brought to Coal Hill School, where history teacher Barbara Wright goes to speak to science teacher Ian Chesterton about one of their mutual students, Susan Foreman. Susan appears to be both a prodigy and an oddity for both teachers. Barbara mentions that she broached the subject of giving advanced tutoring to Susan at her home, only to be told her grandfather does not like strangers. Ian thinks that is an unusual excuse, as Susan has said that he is a doctor. Barbara said that she got Susan's home address with the intention of meeting her grandfather to address the apparent slip in Susan's homework, only to discover it is actually the scrapyard we saw earlier. Ian finds the whole scenario bizarre, but agrees to accompany Barbara on her investigations. We get our first glimpse of Susan, listening to music in a classroom on a small transistor radio. It seems that Barbara's concerns are well-founded, as Susan seems to take an almost otherworldly interest in everyday occurrences like walking in the dark fog and English rock music. The teachers depart, and Susan begins to read a book about the French Revolution that Barbara had loaned her. As she reads it, she proclaims, That's not right. We're now brought to a scene of Ian and Barbara in a car, waiting for Susan to return to her home. They discuss more of Susan's odd behaviour, such as believing the UK were on the decimal system for their currency, only to state that it hasn't started there yet, or when she seemed to have advanced scientific knowledge beyond the scope of Ian. They witness Susan arrive at the scrapyard. After she goes in, Ian and Barbara go after her. Barbara feels as if they were about to enter something that neither of them are quite prepared for. They can find no sign of her in the scrapyard, which is unusual, as there is only one way in or out. Barbara finds the police box, and Ian marvels at the fact that it seems to be vibrating, as if an electric charge was running through it. Suddenly, they hear coughing from the entranceway, and hide as an elderly man makes his way towards the police box. Susan's voice calls out from the police box, and Barbara reacts to it, alerting the old man to their presence. Ian goes out to question him about Susan's whereabout, but he acts oddly, questioning as if they actually saw her come in at all. He seems to find the whole scenario rather amusing. Ian demands that he open the box so that he can see if Susan is okay, and if he doesn't, then he will call for the police. The old man refuses, and once again questions the validity of their suspicions, and tells him to go find a policeman so that he can prove Susan is not there. As they leave, Susan opens the door and calls out for her grandfather. He orders her to shut the door, but Ian holds him and tells Barbara to rescue Susan. Barbara enters the police box, only to discover it is much larger on the inside, and seems to be of a highly advanced technological design. Ian and Susan's grandfather follow after her, and the grandfather tells Susan that he, this was bound to happen if they stayed in one location for too long. Ian is completely baffled by his surroundings, but Susan's grandfather refuses to elaborate and acts almost as if they are not there. He tries to explain the dimensional difference between inside and outside, almost like he is speaking to a child. He then wonders if they will tell anyone about his ship. Susan announces that the ship has a name. She calls it the TARDIS, an acronym for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space, and indicates that it is capable of going anywhere and any when. Grandfather announces that they are wanderers, cut off from their own planet and people. Susan asks her grandfather to please let them go, but he refuses. Barbara still cannot believe that this is real, as Susan and her grandfather look as human as they do. She and Ian try to leave, but the doors remain locked. Ian demands to be let go from this trick, and again the old man finds the whole scenario rather amusing. Ian tries to open the doors via the console at the centre of the room, but the old man touches a button that causes Ian to receive an electric shock. Susan once again begs her grandfather to let Ian and Barbara go, but he tells them that if he does then they will have to leave as well, as he can't risk them exposing the secrets of the TARDIS. Susan says that she won't leave the 20th century, and her grandfather indicates that he will give in to her ultimatum. However, he goes to activate the console. Susan tries to stop him, but the TARDIS takes off. We see the TARDIS travel through the void of time and space and land on a sandy, desolated hill. Inside the TARDIS, both Ian and Barbara have passed out due to the strain, whereas Susan and her grandfather are unaffected. Outside, a shadow approaches the TARDIS. Episode 2. The Cave of Skulls. The shadowy figure looks on at the TARDIS. He is dressed very primitively. The scene then cuts to a cave where a tribe of primitives go about their daily lives. One of the males, Zah, 
is trying to make fire but to no avail. He demands that the elder woman of the tribe tell him the secrets of fire, like his father once knew. It appears that his desire is driven by a power struggle for leadership of the tribe between himself and another named Cal. Back in the TARDIS, Barbara wakes up and rouses Ian. They see Susan and her grandfather working on the console, announcing that they are no longer in 1963, and possibly in an entirely different location. Ian remains sceptical that any of this is real, and asks for the old man to open the doors. He addresses him as Dr. Foreman, but the old man seems confused by this, asking, Dr. Who? The old man says that it seems to be okay to go outside and do a survey, to see when and where they are. Ian and the old man get into a debate about the nature of the flow of time, with Ian stating that time keeps going and can't be jumped on and off. Again, the old man seems very amused by Ian's ignorance. He opens the doors to show them that what they see outside is not an illusion. Barbara ventures out first after the old man, followed by a still-dazed Ian being supported by Susan. As they marvel at their surroundings, the old man seems disturbed that the TARDIS is still a police box. The old man begins to survey their surroundings, but he is unknowingly stalked by the figure from earlier. As they observe their surroundings, Susan also comments on the fact that the TARDIS has not changed, and indicates that it is designed to blend itself into its surroundings. She also has an uneasy feeling, and hears a cry from the direction that her grandfather went. They arrive to find his equipment smashed, and some of his personal belongings left behind. Susan is quite distraught about this, but Ian and Barbara reassure her that they will help her look for him. As they gather up his possessions, Ian comments that the sand that they are on is near freezing temperature. Back in the cave, Za continues to stew in his anger at his inability to make fire, and that Cal, although being a tribeless outsider, seems to be growing in power and popularity due to his prowess at bringing meat and furs back to the tribe. Cal returns to the cave, carrying the unconscious form of Susan's grandfather with him. Cal says that he can use the old man to help make fire, as he earlier saw him lighting a pipe. Za and Cal get into a heated debate about who should be leader and eventually draw weapons on each other. The old man wakes up and realises that he has become a pawn in a deadly game and offers to give the tribe as much fire as they wish. However, it appears he has lost the matches for his pipe and Za uses this as an opportunity to discredit Cal. Cal flies into a rage and attempts to kill the old man, but Susan, Ian and Barbara appear and attempt to save him. Za gets the upper hand on Ian, but before he can finish them off, the old man states that if he dies, he will not make fire for the tribe. Cal initially seems infatuated with Barbara, but the old woman urges him to kill her. But Za stops him, saying that they will do it in the Cave of Skulls as a sacrifice to make the orb return to the sky. The old woman states that the fire seems to have driven everyone mad and will consume the tribe and again urges that the travellers be killed. Za once again asserts that they will do it correctly, and by doing so he will show that he is a worthy leader of the tribe. He is also motivated by the fact that the father of his mate, who is named Her, seems to want her only to be with the leader, regardless of who it is. In the cave, the old man apologises for getting them into their current predicament. Ian draws their attention to the multitudes of skulls in the cave, noting that they all seem to have been split open. Episode 3. The Forest of Fear Back in the tribal cave, the members of the tribe are asleep, but the old woman wakes up and silently goes to where Za is sleeping. She takes his dagger and exits the cave, observed by her. She wakes him up, and they depart after her. Ian tries to free the others, but, fo- but cannot find anything sharp enough to cut their bonds. The old man says that it is futile, as they are sealed in the cave, which further infuriates Ian, who says that they have to at least try. The old man agrees, but insists that they free Ian first, as he is their best hope of defence if the tribe returns. The old man then asks Barbara to try and remember their way back to the TARDIS. She is taken aback by his newfound helpfulness, and he says that fear makes friends of us all, and they must follow Ian's example and trust to hope that they will make it out alive. Suddenly, Susan screams as she witnesses the old woman appear in the cave from a secret entrance. Outside the cave, Za and her deduce that the old woman intends to kill the strangers to stop them from giving the tribe the secret of fire. Together, they realize that if they stop her, then the strangers will show them how to make fire, and this will be Zaz's opportunity to be leader over Cal. They hear the old woman inside the cave talking to the strangers. The old woman releases them and begs them to leave so the tribe can't learn the secret of fire. They flee as Za and her enter the cave. He throws the old woman to the ground, knocking her unconscious. He is reluctant to pursue the prisoners due to the ferocious beasts that live in the forest behind the cave. Her, however, convinces him that if he wants to be the leader, then he needs to show strength and fearlessness, and so they begin the hunt. In the forest, the old man begs to stop for a moment to catch his breath, 
but Ian urges for haste. He offers to carry the old man, who immediately chastises him. Susan helps him instead, as Ian comforts Barbara, who can't remember how to get back to the TARDIS. Emotions run high the further into the forest they go. Barbara becomes convinced that they are being stalked by something, only for the old man to fob off her concerns. He and Ian argue as to the best course of action, effectively getting into a pissing contest as to who should make the decisions in the group, but agree to continue, but agree to continue with the old man and Susan leading the way, and with Barbara and Ian bringing up the rear. As they go on, Barbara falls over the carcass of a boar-like creature and screams in fear. This alerts Za and her to their whereabouts, and they hide from them. As their pursuers enter the clearing, they hear grunting and snarling from the bushes nearby. Za goes to investigate and is attacked by an unseen creature. Ian tells them to make a break for it, but Barbara can't bring herself to leave Za to his fate, no matter what they have done to them, and goes to help him. Ian and Susan go after her despite the old man's protests who follow after them. Za is badly injured and her is reluctant to let them near, but she does so when they say that all they want to do is help. Barbara and Ian clean the wounds and ask for the old man's aid, only to be told he is not a medical doctor. He urges them to leave again and Barbara gives out to him about his superior attitude. He says it is a practical attitude as the longer they delay, the likelier they will be caught, highlighting that the old woman could be informing the rest of the tribe about what has transpired. Back in the cave, Cal comes across the injured old woman. He demands to know what has happened and she tells him about Za and her. When she tells him that the strangers will not make fire for the tribe, he kills her in anger. Barbara asks her that in exchange for helping them back to the TARDIS, they will heal Za and show him how to make fire. Za tells her to agree as he realizes that they will not hurt them. They begin to fashion a stretcher for Za. Ian asks the old man for help, just referring to him as Doctor. He seems to relent after Susan tells the other two that he has a tendency to act like a child when he doesn't get his own way. However, he picks up a stone and when he is confronted by Ian, says that he was going to ask Za to use it to draw them a map to the TARDIS. Back in the cave, Cal is rousing the members of the tribe into a frenzy, saying that Za and her have gone to free the strangers. Her's father says that he would not do this, and their absence proves nothing as the old woman is also missing. Cal tells them that she is at the Cave of Skulls, and when they arrive, they find her dead. He convinces the tribe that she came to stop Za and her from taking the secret of fire from themselves, and killed her and released the prisoners. The tribe agrees to follow Cal in both to get fire and their revenge. The group arrives back at the TARDIS, but they suddenly find themselves surrounded by the members of the tribe. Episode 4, The Firemaker. After their capture, Cal uses Za's injuries to gain advantage in their power struggle, once again asserting that he and her released the prisoners and murdered the old woman. He states that Za has the murder weapon with him, but Grandfather points out that there is no blood on it. He tricks Cal into revealing his knife and then shows it to the rest of the tribe, stating that Cal killed the old woman. Cal admits to it, and the old man and Ian lead the tribe in banishing Cal from the cave. Za uses this opportunity to claim leadership, and orders the prisoners to be locked back in the Cave of Skulls. Outside, Za and her discuss what they have learned from their prisoners about how the tribe can prosper if they work together instead of as individuals. However, he still wants to learn the secrets of fire, and says he will get the old man to show him. In the cave, Ian is attempting to make fire as Za comes in. He asks if Ian is the leader as it was him who helped him after the beast attack. However, Ian indicates that the old man is their leader, much to Susan's happiness. Zad then offers that if they show him how to make fire, he will take them back to the TARDIS instead of sacrificing them as the tribe wishes. Back in the cave, Hur is trying to calm down the tribe, who think that Zad has failed in his responsibilities as leader by not bringing the prisoners to be sacrificed. Once again in the Cave of Skulls, Ian is successful in his attempts to make fire but Cal suddenly appears, and he and Za begin to fight. Despite his injuries, Za prevails and kills Cal. They hear the angry tribe approach, and Ian gives Za a burning branch so he can solidify his leadership. Za orders that the new tribe be fed and looked after while he goes out to hunt for meat. Later on, Za reneges on his promise and says that the two tribes will now remain together, much to the traveller's dismay. Susan discovers that by placing a burning branch inside one of the skulls, it creates a terrifying illusion. Ian suggests that they use the flaming skulls to fake their deaths as, and it is successful, allowing them to escape while the tribe cringe in fear. However, Za soon sees through their ruse and sets off in pursuit. The travellers reach the TARDIS and the Doctor, as, as Ian once again refers to him, 
takes off just as the tribe attacks. They are stunned to see their weapons pass through the disappearing TARDIS. Ian and Barbara ask to be brought home, but the doctor indicates that he did not have enough time to gather the, enough data to plot the correct coordinates, and they arrive at an unknown location. Looking through the view screen, they see a strange force, and Susan reads the ship's Geiger counter to show a normal radiation reading. However, as they leave, the readout rises to show a dangerously high level. End of episode 4, and end of the story. I must say, congratulations on getting through a four-episode recap that included both the pronoun, her, and the character, her. And now that that's the story recapped, we'll hand it over to Trisha for some trivia notes. Thanks, buddy. So, this first story was directed by Waris Hussein. We mentioned last week in our discussion around the unaired pilot that Waris also directed Marco Polo, so we'll discuss him more later when we discuss that episode. The story was written by Anthony Coburn, with a writer credit for episode one also being given to C.E. Weber. The reason for this is that originally the launch story for Doctor Who was meant to be a story by Weber that would later become Planet of the Giants. When the decision was made to launch the story, to include the caveman storyline instead, the first episode of Giants needed to be reworked to fit with the caveman story that followed, hence the partial writing credit. The story aired from November 23rd to December 14th, 1963. That date may ring familiar for some people, as it means the first episode aired the day after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Understandably, news of the assassination overshadowed the launch of BBC's new science fiction programme. This, in conjunction with a blackout in parts of the country, on the 23rd, resulted in the first episode being repeated on November 30th before the second episode went out. As was discussed when we talked about the unaired pilot, the first episode in the story was reshot after Sidney Newman was unhappy with the original studio recording. The reshoot did not change the plot of episode 1, but it did change the characterisation of the Doctor and Susan, and some of the interactions changed as a result of that. The only casting change between the studio run and the reshoot was the police officer who appears at the beginning of the episode. He was originally played by Fred Rawlings, but was replaced by Reg Cranfield in the reshoot. In episodes two through four, we get our first guest actors of the show, many of whom actually come back in Doctor Who again in their career. Starting with the leader, we have Derek Newark as Za. Derek has one more acting credit in Doctor Who. He appeared in the amazing John Pertwee episode Inferno as Greg Sutton. Her was played by Alethea Charlton, and my apologies if I've butchered her name. Alethea starred again with William Hartnell in the second season story, The Time Meddler, where she plays Edith. Old Mother was played by Eileen Way. Eileen appeared in the Tom Baker story, The Creature from the Pit, as Carilla. She was also in the 1966 film, Dalek's Invasion on Earth, 2150 AD, which is a stupid title, by the way, which was based on the 1964 Doctor Who story, The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Her character in the film was credited as Old Woman. It appears she plays Old insert mother slash woman here quite a lot. Carl was played by Jeremy Young. Jeremy returned to Doctor Who in season three for the only standalone episode of Doctor Who, Mission to the Unknown, where he played Gordon Lowry. Lastly, we have Howard Lang as Horg, Her's father. Howard is the only one not to appear again in Doctor Who. As I've already said, the main cast remains unchanged from the first studio recording of episode one. We have William Hartnell as the Doctor, Caroline Ford as Susan, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, and Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright. Over the next few episodes, we will look at each of these actors in a bit more detail, starting this week with the man himself, William Hartnell. William Hartnell was born on January 8, 1908. He began working in theatre in 1925, starting as a general stagehand, but going on to appear in numerous Shakespearean plays, as well as many others. It was in 1928 that he met his future wife, Heather McIntyre, when they appeared together in the play Miss Elizabeth's Prisoner. His first film role was in the 1932 film Say It With Music. William served in the tank corps of the British Army during World War II, but was invalided out or discharged on medical grounds after 18 months as he suffered from a nervous breakdown. When he was approached to star in Doctor Who, it is reported that he was a bit hesitant to take the role as it was pitched to him as a children's programme and he was having good success in films at the time. Hartnell later said that he took the role as it was a change of pace from the gruff military types he was being typecast as, and that as a grandfather himself, he came to relish the attention and affection playing the character brought him from children. It is a characteristic of the first Doctor that he occasionally stumbles over his words, 
According to William Russell, Hartnell would sometimes do this deliberately. However, over time, his debilitating health was the leading cause of Hartnell being unable to remember his lines. There are mixed stories about what Hartnell was like to work with. Some people say he was very difficult to work with and that he was racist and anti-Semitic. However, others have nothing but positive things to say about him. Maybe it was a case of if he liked you, he, he liked you. But if he didn't, then tough. Hartnell left Doctor Who in 1966 due to his poor health and the fact that he did not get on well with the production crew after the departure of Verity Lambert, who he absolutely adored. He would return to Doctor Who in 1972 for The Three Doctors. We'll talk about that more when we come to it. The Three Doctors was his last acting role before his death in 1975. In 2018, his granddaughter unveiled a plaque marking William Hartnell's work at Ealing Studios where Doctor Who was filmed. Those are some really interesting trivia notes. I had heard the um, the issues with him potentially being racist and anti-Semitic, but it's kind of funny that uh, Caroline Ford, who I think is Jewish, has said that he was nothing but uh, kind to her, and as well with Boris Hussein, who again has said that like it was great working with uh, with William Hartnell. Yeah, it's. I didn't want to go into too much detail on who said what. Some of them are Doctor Who actors who are quite well known who had issues working with Hartnell. I also don't want to get into a debate around the whole I can't be racist because I have a black friend type of debate. That's why I think for someone like Hartnell, it was probably if he liked you, he liked you. If he didn't, he didn't. And maybe that's because of your gender or race or religious beliefs, but he just doesn't like you. Um, I don't think we can really speak too much that because we don't we didn't know him no and i suppose you could maybe say like he was an equal opportunity person as to whether he liked everyone or hated everyone so that was his case i actually remember the very first thing i ever saw william hartnell in was uh an old carry-on movie and i couldn't believe that this was the guy that played the very first doctor yeah at the beginning of his career he actually was a bit of a comedy actor but he somehow over time just got stuck in this gruff military type role before he came to Doctor Who. I think that's down to if you actually ever take a look at him outside of the Doctor Who get up, like if you go even if you go back to it's Carry On Sergeant is the movie that he's in, he actually has quite stern features. Like they're very he's got a very angular face and you know the way that most casting agents would kind of go off of your physical features as well as your ability to play the role. So I think because he looked such like a harsh customer, maybe that's why he was getting typecast a lot in that regards. Possibly. I'm sure we'll discuss more about him and his work as we go through the episodes. But I think that was a nice overview of who William Hartnell was. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a nice toe in the water. Each week, as well as going through the story summary and some trivia, Paddy and I are going to be discussing the characters themselves and how we feel they were portrayed in the given story. So, to start us off with, how about we take a look at the Doctor himself? Paddy, what was your opinion of the Doctor in this first story? Going off the, what we discussed last week in terms of the pilot, this character I find a lot more interesting and a lot more engaging. Now, that's not to say that it's a complete uh, flip-reverse, because... There is one point in the story where it looks like he is going to kill someone just for the sake, just well, obviously to save himself and Susan, but um, for the better of the the party, he's almost going to murder Za. But he's all over the place, I think, uh, which is good because you're not gi- you're not given just this one layer to him. You get to see multiple layers of him. Like he's caring, uh, he's supportive, he's angry, he's He's superior, he's egotistical, he's tactical. So you'd love, like, it gives you the impression that you'd love to see him when he's in command of the scenario, just to see what he's like. Because when he's outside of control of the scenario, he's like a whirlwind of emotions and he doesn't really know how to do stuff. And I suppose this actually speaks to William Hartnell's acting, that he can portray so many different emotions in one character in such a short space of time because like again like it's only if you put all four episodes together it's like coming out to about maybe 90 minutes and to kind of have this character that you fall in love with and hate and fall in love with and hate and like all over again throughout that one story everything really stands to him how about you yeah i wouldn't say that he doesn't know what to do when he's not in control i think what he 
wants to do to regain control just doesn't gel with what we would maybe expect a protagonist to do in that situation or with what the group would expect him to do because he clearly has a plan of what he wants to do which just doesn't match with everyone else i, I suppose yeah because yeah, like he, he gets into he does as i said in the recap like he does get into the sort of pissing contests with ian as to like who's calling the shots yeah one of the things that stood out for me in particularly the reshoot of episode one but throughout the story as a whole is that in the unaired pilot, I described him as the villain, which was upsetting. In this, he's more mischievous than villainous. Oh, yeah. The whole way he plays with Ian and Barbara at the beginning is like the way you'd play with a child or someone that you felt was inferior, like a pet or something like, oh, did you really see it? Really? Did you? Do you know, it's not as gruff. It's not as angry as we saw in the unaired episode and we see that as well with his relationship with susan so in the unaired pilot he blamed her he was very angry with her and i got this weird vibe of like is this a sort of emotionally abusive relationship they have whereas in this he calls her on it but it's it almost came across as more of a this is what i was trying to say to you we need to be careful this, this is what I was trying to protect us from, or and by, so, by extension, protect you specifically from. Yeah, it's more of a learning experience than the brutal, you stupid girl that we got in the Unearthed episode. I had forgotten that he smokes, which is stupid, because that's the whole thing that kicks off the episode. But <laughs> I had forgotten that, which was interesting to watch again. Well, like, yeah, because I suppose n- none of the other like doctors really have vices or anything like that and just to see him crack out a pipe it, it feels with his get up and everything like that it just feels like it's part of his natural accoutrement but look at me using fancy words um no yeah it, it, it was really weird but i suppose like, like it's a handy plot device yeah um overall though i do agree with you in many ways and that we do see him run the gamut as a character in this opening story we see him as the scientist he's very much like i want to go get my samples i'm going to figure out where we are very much in his element you know you kind of get the sense and when susan mentions that he would never leave his notebook that that's what this is for him he goes to a new planet he takes readings and samples and he documents everything and that's what he does which is great to sort of get that overview of him right at the beginning i mentioned that he's a bit mischievous there is one part that on an initial watch you would probably be like that is an evil moment which is when he shocks Ian. Yeah. And I want to compare the way they did that shocking compared to the way they did it in the unaired episode. In the unaired episode, it was malicious and it was designed to hurt. And I don't know if it's just because he was being playful up until this point, I was more endeared to him. But the way I saw his shocking of Ian this time round was the way you would warn how do I put it? Have you ever seen those like bark shock collars that you can get for dogs? Yeah. Where if they bark, they get a little shock to the vocal cords, basically. Um, it doesn't hurt them. It's just a little sort of boofed. Stop doing that. And I sort of saw it as that. He wasn't trying to hurt him. He was trying to discourage him from touching things he knows nothing about. When... In Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, when Mike TV eats the exploding candy and Willy, and you know, blows up, and Willy Wonka just goes, "I told you not to, silly boy." Which Willy Wonka was that? The Gene Wilder one. He didn't explode. What are you on about? No, no, exploding candy. He eats it and like you know, it kind of goes off in his mouth. Oh, that yeah. I was like, what are you? I was like, no one exploded in Willy Wonka. <laughs> no, no, I get what you mean now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like that. That sort of like you know, I told you not to. Yeah, which, which. You know, it's still not great that he shocked him, but no. it doesn't have the same malicious intent. I think where we still see growth for this character is definitely his moral compass, which is all over the map. Yeah, He comes to care for, or at least take responsibility for Ian and Barbara and the fact that he is genuinely very apologetic when they're in the Cave of Skulls. While he wanted to keep him and Susan safe, he never wanted them to be in this type of situation. But at the same time, he clearly has very little interest in the cavemen and the tribe. Maybe because he understands their mentality 
like he said they'll turn on us just as quickly as they'll help us and he was right yeah so maybe because he has this greater knowledge he was like there is no point in you wasting time helping them they won't appreciate you for it but for us coming from a modern morality that seems cruel whereas maybe he was actually the one who was in the right the whole time it's interesting I think, or it's going to be interesting to see how that is going to develop and how those morality clashes, particularly with Ian and Barbara, Barbara especially because she's so compassionate, how those match up and whether we see that coming up again and again. Yeah, like it's, do you have the thing of like where Ian and Barbara, as you said, like with our modern morality, like so you have them with their like 1960s sensibilities, whereas the doctor he's had access to time and space so he has he could potentially have lived in times very similar to this or visited times very similar to this so he would have potential first-hand experience as to i can back up my i can back up my statements whereas you really can't so you should listen to me yeah the other person who went through a lot of change i think in comparison to the unaired pilot was susan yes and this was done deliberately what do you think about susan this time around First thing is, she's definitely more childlike, which is, in my mind, a huge improvement for the character and for the show, because if you're trying to have a gateway character for a younger audience, having Susan act like this is your is your perfect gateway. Like, she still comes across as very alien, but the one thing that kind of transcends all, like, alienness or humanness or whatever way you want to put it, is, like, the love and affection she has for her friends and family. Like, that's kind of universal and she like throws herself into scenarios to defend them like uh when they find the doctor uh with the caveman she's the first one to try and rescue him like she's the one leading the charge and the one thing as well about susan i really like in this story is that throughout the whole story she's the only consistent character in terms of her emotions her characteristics she doesn't kind of flip-flop or she doesn't um go from like really peaking highs to really down in the depths lows for any emotion she's just consistent the whole way through and very believable in the role as a teenager i would i wouldn't necessarily agree with you in that she's the most consistent because one of the things i noticed is when you take her from an environment that she knows and feels comfortable in so she clearly felt comfortable in the 20th century she was able to relax and be a teenager, like you said, in the way that she spoke with Ian and Barbara and the way that she speaks with the doctor. You know, she's much more of like a rebellious teenager. You know, we've all had this conversation of I'd rather stay here than go with you. You know, every kid can relate to that, that they've had with a parent or a guardian or something. However, the minute her grandfather is taken from her, all of that calm and collectiveness and sort of just, you know, jolly teen goes completely out the frickin' window and she loses her mind which is completely understandable in the scenario and I think to your point it does speak to how much she cares for her grandfather but when you compare her being you know yeah a bit sort of like you know she got excited in the first episode in her talks with him and she did plead with him but like not to the absolute breakdown levels we see in particularly episode two, when she realizes that her grandfather is gone. And I think for me, what that said was, I get the sense that she's very rarely away from him. Mm. Not in a a creepy way, but in a sort of, unless they're in a location where he feels they're safe and comfortable, he doesn't leave her alone very often because it's not safe. Yeah. And so the idea that she's suddenly without him really causes her to panic so i said i wouldn't say that she's the most consistent because she does have a couple of highs and lows in that respect she's not as all over the map as the doctor is though well what i what i in just in when i was talking about the consistency as well like the fact that she still acts like a child so whether she's going from her teenager to her i suppose her childlike thing of like her fear for her grandfather she doesn't i suppose Compared to like the previous episode, or compared to the other characters, I think she just still maintains the level of child attitude from the age of like seven up to seventeen. 
and I suppose all the varying emotions that therein lie, lie in there. But I do, I do see your point, all right. One of the things as well that I had maybe forgotten, because it's been, it's been about 10 years since I watched this episode properly. Do you know, I'd, I'd seen bits of it again, but it's been about 10 years since I actually sat down and properly watched it. Was Susan the original screaming companion that everyone thinks of? See, I don't know, because Barbara... This is the thing now about Barbara that you find in like the first couple of stories, is that she has at least one good scream per story. And I think what happens in terms of like old science fiction shows, people tend to remember the the screams rather than the actual character building moments so i would i don't know if you kind of put down as susan as the first screaming companion i would kind of link it more to barbara but again for i i as a complete uh, misrepresentation yeah i would say barbara is probably the first i'm doing air quotes here screaming companion the real first screaming companion comes much later on down the line yeah this is the one thing with susan that again i'd kind of forgotten is boy she can hit a high note when she screams it's slightly deafening in the ears a little bit. Oh, and as well, like when it comes into some of the later stories where it's just audio recordings, and it's like the really grainy audio. God, like you, you, you'd want to be, you wouldn't want to be wearing headphones watching those episodes. Yeah, definitely. So we said that the Su- that the Susan, that makes no sense. We said that Susan and the Doctor were the two characters who had the biggest shift from the Unheard Pilot. Yes. We do also have Ian and Barbara, who maybe went through changes as a result of the other characters changing. So their reactions may be slightly different. So do you want to talk Ian first or Barbara? I would say Ian first, and then we can uh, lead in with Barbara. Okay, so what was your impression of Ian this time around? It's, it's very difficult, I think, in one sense, to go back and watch these episodes, because I know how, how the characters grow and mature as they go on. And I have the this either love or hatred is too strong a word dislike, and all and then you've got like I've got ones I've love I've got ones that I dislike and then you've got the ones in the middle who are like nay Ian is a character that I would put probably in my top five companions of all time, but that's across the whole spectrum of the sixteen stories that he was in. In this first story, there's a lot in there that I really like about Ian and that is a hallmark of Ian, is like his almost effortless charm, his, as well, desire to protect people. And I'm just trying to think, like, there's some other stuff that I'm just trying to find out specifically for this first episode. Is, like, you know, I, I suppose his two really strong points are his, like, he, the fact that he's a very charismatic character and the fact that he's incredibly dedicated to looking after the people that he sees as under his wing. One thing that is kind of strange is that you know, he doesn't really get on with the Doctor and I think that's because they're almost like a mirror image of each other in the sense of like Ian has his beliefs that he know that he thinks that what he says is right and you've got the Doctor doing that and you've got essentially got two bulls just butting heads constantly for the better part of four episodes and oddly enough I think that for a man of science he's far less accepting of their whole scenario than Barbara is at that, that's at the initial component, but then, like I suppose, when they're in the thick of it, all those kind of concerns fly away, and his whole point is just to get them back to the TARDIS. But Ian, I suppose, is a character that you get a nice taste of in the first the first story, and it just builds on as the stories go on. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with you in that he is charming, and I was really glad that that carried over from the Unheard episode, because we said that last week, that he was charming and funny, someone that you could be friends with, do you know? Just a nice bloke. Yes. Where I saw the biggest change in him was obviously once they get into the TARDIS, because the Doctor isn't being as aggressive, Ian isn't being as reactionary as he was in the Unheard episode. And that's a a bit nicer to see because he stays a bit more calm. And you can tell that he wants to understand it. It's just not computing. Like There is no data available in his brain that will make this make sense. But what I found an interesting leap in logic that he made, and I didn't write this in my notes because I just recalled it, is when they first come across the TARDIS and they're looking at the police box and he's going around it in wonder and he recognises the hum and he places his hand on it. 
he doesn't say it's humming. He doesn't say, you know, oh, I wonder what this is. He says it's alive. Yeah. I think that's a really good insight into his brain can't compute what this is now, but maybe someday he will. And I quite like that he has that line of it's alive. Just makes me think of Frankenstein. (laughs) It's alive. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. His chivalry comes out in leaps and bounds. He's clearly very protective in that he wants to put the women in their safety first. Although he knows he has to be strong for Barbara. Because you can imagine, given the way, like you said, his belief system is being challenged in terms of what is reality and what is the world capable of. But Barbara's losing her mind. Yeah. And he is trying so hard to be strong for her. And it's really sweet to see. And I suppose like that's a nice segue into Barbara. The transition from Ian into the other human compo- companion on the show. Yeah, I think Barbara's the one who probably changed the least from the honored pilot onwards. Ian changed a little bit because the interactions he was having changed. So his reaction to them changed a little bit. Barbara, though, in my mind, is the most consistent character. Her caring, compassionate nature, we see it through the entire story. She's the one who wanted to help Za. Even when Ian and Susan, the doctor, all said no, Barbara put her foot down and said, I'm not leaving him. We're helping him. And I like the line that Ian has where she, where he's like, I'm, I think you're the type of person who has a flat full of cats and strays. Um, because it just sort of highlights how compassionate she is. Yeah. And I like that that carried through. We saw it in... The first episode when she obviously cares about Susan and she wanted to encourage her and help her develop. But it extends beyond that. She puts the well-being of people first. It doesn't matter that they scared the crap out of her, locked her in a cave full of like decaying bodies and skulls. This person was hurt and she has to help them. Yeah. Um, And that was like, I suppose, one thing that I found, uh, which, sorry, which kind of uh, added to my initial concepts or my initial thoughts about how all the characters bar Susan were like kind of all over the place in terms of their emotional spectrum or characteristic spectrum. Cause like there are times there like where Barbara is absolutely fearless and then there are other times where it's, where did that person go? And I suppose one example of that is like when they're in the cave and she's initially down, uh, downtrodden, uh, but their predicament and the doctor tries to perk her up and then they escape and she's kind of coming to pieces as she's trying to recall where the TARDIS on the way, sorry, recall where the TARDIS is and then you have the thing with Za and immediately she, as you said, just goes into that I don't care what they've done, I can't leave him to die this way and again, like Ian you get the inkling that Barbara is a character of so much there's so much capability there that you do want to see how they get on in their next set of adventures or whatever the case may be because at this stage like up until the end of this story you could very well bank on the BBC kind of going okay we've now established that the Doctor is a kooky old man who travels around with his grandchild going off to far and flung adventures and they just pick up random people every so often but you're you're definitely glad that they actually stayed with Ian and Barbara and kept them on for another long while rather than just dumping them after four episodes because there's so much potential for growth in the two of them and especially with Barbara because Barbara, I think, her character seems well ahead of her time. Yeah, and what I like about Barbara and maybe it came across as sort of flip-flopping emotions or whatever a little bit is I think her reactions are completely understandable. When they get to the cave and all that kind of stuff. I mean, she was kind of okay on the planet, a bit freaked out. Or, like, when they got out of the TARDIS, she was a bit freaked out. Um, But it's when they're captured that she loses the plot entirely. And like you said, when they're trying to get back to the TARDIS, she doesn't remember the way. And that's just not where her skill set is. And she's scared. And that's completely understandable. What I think I liked about the her sort of changing and being like no we have to help Zah even though she'd been freaked out the whole time was when she's completely freaked out 
she can still latch on to the things that make her Barbara. Barbara has no skill set that will help her when she's trapped in a cave of skulls. Not her wheelhouse. No. Trying to remember the track back to the TARDIS when they're running, you know, through the dark and she's really freaked out. Maybe not her wheelhouse. There's nothing familiar for her to latch onto. Someone being hurt and needing help, that is familiar, that she can latch onto. And to your point, I really look forward to seeing what other aspects of her personality we see in the upcoming stories and what new things she gets to add to her wheelhouse that become more natural for her as things go on. And there's actually one last thing I'd like to say about Barbara, and it's it's something that does, I think, lend itself to the argument that Barbara is a character with so much potential. When you go back and rewatch it, when the doctor says, like, come on, let's go outside and let's take a look, she's the first one out the door. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, again, like, Ian would, as, as you know, like, as chivalrous as he is, he's still so skeptical that it takes, like, that's Barbara's the one that takes the, like, the first plunge. And again, in 1963 to my mind anyway that's a character that's ahead of its time that's it's the uh, female character that's leading the way as opposed to the male hero yeah and that's what i love about her yeah that's why yeah again like i i suppose re-going now i might readjust some of my character uh, or my companion ratings but barbara's character that i really really do like and i think she's easily within my top 10 and she, I'd say she's a hair's right away from the top five, but we'll see how that goes on from the uh, the rewatches. But that's probably enough about our heroes. Next, we have our villains. So we're going to look particularly at Carl, Za, and Her, because they're the sort of main three that we interact with. So starting out with Carl, the first thing I have in my notes is troublemaker and shit stirrer. Yep. But able to stand by what he says. Yeah, like he's he's an he's an outsider. Like they've always said, like that he's like his old tribe is gone. Presumably, they all perished due to starvation or or just sub zero temperatures. But you get like yeah, he's he's the type of guy. He's almost like a cuckoo in the sense that he comes into the place and tries to take over. And yeah, he is a complete shitster, and he's just out. Uh, he's not out for the benefit of the tribe. He's just outing because he just doing it because it's self-serving, and he wants to be the leader. Yeah, the thing that like you know, usually when you have people who you know try to rile everyone up and they latch on to this little thread or that action and try to make something out of nothing, usually they do it because they can't accomplish anything by themselves. So they have to bring down everyone else. The thing about Carl, though, is he actually probably would make a good leader in the term in terms of his ability to provide for the tribe. No one says that he can't provide. He is quite good at that. Yeah. So maybe if he were to start his own tribe with people he actually cared about, he probably would be a good leader. But I don't think he gives a monkeys about these people. No. There's a means to an end to him. Yeah. The other thing I've written down here is that he's a devious bastard who knows what it takes to survive. Oh, absolutely. Like he's, I, I'd say, like when you, when he is by himself, because like, we've no idea how long he's been, like his tribe. He's the last of a member of his tribe, but we've no idea how long that's been the case. So we know have no real idea as to how long he's been out in the wild by himself before coming to this tribe. Uh, the tribe of gum, I think, was what they were called in the production notes. But when he gets there, obviously the, the life lessons he's learned up until this point, he's a real calculating customer. He's almost like a Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Actually, that's a really good comparison, except that Littlefinger can't really stand up for himself and Carl can. I'm pretty sure we'll think, we'll think of another analogy. <laughs> but no, but in terms of in terms of how he deals with people and plays them off each other, that's Littlefinger all the way. And his ruthless streak as well in like killing the old woman. So his counterpart or his foil then is Za. What do you think about Za? So when you initially see him, like you, you just come across like that he's completely inept because I know it's very hard to describe it over the visual of a podcast. But like 
most depictions of Cayman starting fire are rubbing two sticks together, whereas Zad just seems to be rolling a femur bone in his hand because he didn't quite grasp the concept of two sticks. So he's rolling in his hand and he's then throwing it onto a big pile of sticks, thinking that that's how fire is done. And you can't help but kind of go, oh, like, you know, Picard face palm, whole thing. But as it goes on, you do get the sense that he is very respected in the tribe when it comes to everything else in terms of his ability to protect them from... They're, they're just called beasts, but presumably some sort of uh, like, uh, descendant of dinosaurs at that stage. I'm not great with the whole... Well, they, they say tigers and bears. Yeah, so, yeah, it's coming into that uh, yeah Ice Age component, I suppose, or... Again, my knowledge of prehistoric is not that the timeline's not great. Man and dinosaurs living together as one harmony. So I know as the show goes on, you get to see that right. Maybe he is worthy of being leader. He maybe he not be a good leader, but he's definitely a candidate for the tribe to follow. And the fact that he's able to kill Cal while he is still wounded from the beast attack, you're you are kind of like right. If this guy had been 100% or if he was more than 100%, could the doctor and his companions have gotten away? Yeah, I I think at the beginning he he does come across as a bit dim. Yeah. Um and he takes his lead from her in a in a massive way. I would say that his whole rubbing the bone thing. I didn't pick that up in quite the same way you did. Um I actually felt a bit bad for him at that point because they established that the his father, the previous leader, would never let anyone see how he made fire. So presumably all Za ever saw, like over his shoulder or something, was a rubbing action, the sticks, and maybe his father did use a bone or something similar. So he's he's trying to figure out he doesn't see it as a mechanism, he sees it maybe as a ritual. And so he's just trying to figure out, you know, what did he do that I'm not doing? So I didn't really see it as he didn't get the concept of sticks. No one knew that rubbing the sticks together should have been a thing because the previous leader didn't show any of them that. So presumably all Zas saw was his hands moving. Like if you imagine you're looking at the back of someone and they're rubbing their hands together. All you're seeing is that movement and he knows that sticks were involved because he saw them and he knows that maybe a bone was used at some point. And so he's just trying to fill in the gaps the best way he knows how. Yeah, that's one thing I admit, like, I didn't actually kind of think into because, like, I was just so mesmerized by the rubbing of the bone and the hands thing, kind of going, like, what what could, could what could conceivably have entered into his head? But as you say, yeah, like, his father, I suppose, the fact that he is the son of the previous firebearer and he had to ask the old woman to reveal the secrets that his father once knew, yeah, like, that is kind of strange, all right. Yeah, and, like, I get the sense from the way he is throughout the course of the episode, like when people aren't questioning him and making fun of him, I get the sense that he is a good leader and he would be a good provider for the tribe, but it's the obsession with fire and the fact that he can't do it undermines everything. And I think he also feels it, which is why he defers to her more often. But later on, when he realises that the group from the TARDIS helped him, you can tell that he kind of comes into his own in a big way. And he makes decisions that make sense from a leader's perspective. Would we, the fan, have liked him to let them go as soon as they made fire for him? Yes. But he recognised that letting them go means that if he ever failed to make fire again, he's done for. Yeah. But he didn't treat them badly. He treat, Although keeping them in a cave is a bit crap, but he made sure that they had food and in his mind he was caring for them. Yeah. Even if again to us it was a bit barbaric. Kirsty's modern sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. Lastly we have the strong woman behind the leader and the cause of many many awkward sentences in your recap which is her. Uh, I, I wasn't a particular big fan of her in this episode and doing the recap I have now grown to hate her spelled h-u-r <laughs> the one thing that i wrote down about her was and that's h-e-r whatever way you want to put it um that she comes across to me as very kind of lady macbeth like whispering in the ear trying to get her man to be the one in power 
and going to nearly nearly every means necessary. And she does, and it doesn't seem to come across as so. Like to give it a modern analogy, like climbing the social ladder for her own benefit, because when her father says that she's promised to the strongest person that can be leader, she doesn't like that idea, and she actually does seem to be genuinely in love with Za. So she does have like a couple of layers to her. Yeah, like. One of the things I've written down about her, and this kind of goes to your Lady Macbeth thing, is that she's not quite what we would call today a nag. She's not quite there. She is very much the voice in his ear, though. And I take it that she knows he can do better. Yeah. And she wants to make sure that he's making the right choices. She's also a woman who knows what she wants. And will go after it. And if she can't get something by herself, she will have Za get it for her. Because she knows that that's the way things need to go. Like you mentioned, like her father said that she would go to the leader. And she has already decided that the leader is Za. And it doesn't matter that she hasn't been, quote unquote, given to him yet. She has chosen him. So screw you. Yeah. Which I quite liked. That sort of woman whispering in the ear character, I think you either love them or you don't. They're a bit marmitey in that respect. But I think in a show made in the 60s, she is a strong female character done in context quite well. And I suppose it depends on... So the the whispering in the ear uh, female character... It depends on where they are in the the forefront of the show. Like, are they the focal point? Say, like for example, now to do another Shakespeare reference, like uh, Goneril and Regan from King Lear. Like, they're they're the main car- people in their uh, relationships, and they tell their husbands what to do. Whereas with Lady uh, Lady Macbeth, Macbeth is the, the focal point, and she's the backup character to that. And I think they're both very effective. So her falls into the Lady Macbeth role in this one but I think she as you said she is quite a strong character in the sense of she seems very independent for away from her father's wishes and because she's latched on to Za she wants him to do as best as he can I, 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 I as much as I give out about the fact that she's got a really annoying name especially when it comes to doing a recap where you're describing people by their <laughs> pronouns yeah she does have some really really good qualities to her in terms of the story yeah, and there's the the last point I have on her before we move on. It was a line that Za said that I quite liked because it showed that we have a strong female character who is appreciated for being a strong female character. It's when her tells him about the old woman having left their sleeping cave and gone to the cave of skulls and Zaz's initial response is, why didn't you stop her? You could have taken her. Yeah. And he immediately would have been like, yeah, you could have done that. Why didn't you do it? Because he knows her strength. Yeah. And I really liked that. I uh, I quite like Zaz and her now that I think about it more. <laughs> Together they're called Zer. It's their couple name. They're villains and they mistreat people in the story and whatever, but for villains, they're the, they're the nice villains. Yeah. They're villains by circumstance as opposed to just being mustache-wielding dick dastardies. And now that we've discussed our heroes and our... They're not quite mustache-twirling villains. They're uh, bearded villains in this one. Uh, we're now going to discuss the story overall. So we will give these stories a ratings out of five. Five being the best, one being not so good. And Trish, what was your score? My score was a 3.5. I felt this was actually a great introductory story. And I think it was a very strong opening for the series as a whole. I can totally imagine back in the day wanting to know more about this show and you know being like i need to tune in next week and see what happens so for me i thought it was a great introductory story i think there's a lot in there for parents and children together and that the anticipation for the next episode would have been equal for the two of them i thought it was very well paced 
there was never any moment where I was bored throughout the entire story. And like I said in our character discussion, I thought we got a good insight into each of our characters. We saw, you know, what makes them them and some potential for future as well, which is always great to see. How about you? I'm a bit on the lower side of the scale. I gave it a 2.5. So I said, it's <laughs> it's not great. It's not bad. It's so-so. Like The one thing that I thought was very interesting about it was that for a science fiction television series, to start off your very first story in the past, and especially in the very, very, very far past, I think it's a very bold move. But it's something that I think was actually done... No, whether it was done deliberately or not, I think it was done really well was the fact that all the characters, so the two human characters and the two alien characters, are all on the same playing field. Because if you had put it in a futuristic or an alien setting, the Doctor and Susan have the immediate advantage and therefore you're, you you get the impression like that they are just, they can back up their superior intellect talk with uh, with their actions. But by putting them in an environment that no one of the four of them actually has an expertise in you do get a good sense of what the characters are capable of and what they can be i really enjoyed that and i suppose the one thing though that what kind of brings it down is that i don't know what it was but there's just something about watching it. i remember watching like a feeling this way when i watched it initially about 10 years ago and on my rewatch for it this time is that i just found for me the pacing was a bit of a struggle to get through just like the story wasn't overly gripping and again it's not one of those stories that i would tell like my friends and stuff you know like oh this is a great first doctor story or this is a great first doctor story and i suppose what kind of was for me was some of the characters being very back and forth with their emotions in such a in such a small scale of time like sometimes i think in multi in one episode the range of their character their characteristics and their emotions changes so much it's very hard to kind of, kind of handle on that person for that for that specific emotion at that amount of time i don't think it was given adequate time so as a, as much as there's really some good stuff here as well this is a story that i wouldn't go out of my way to revisit or i would think so yeah that's just my kind of interpretations of it yeah i think in terms of the pacing i think that's kind of a personal preference thing do you know for me, I was quite interested the whole time. I hadn't watched this opening episode in a long time, actually. It's been a good few years since I've sat down and watched it. I had read the Target book, um, but I hadn't watched the episode. So for me, I didn't have any issue with the pacing. I thought it, like I said, there was no point where I was bored and waiting to see what was happening next. And I think part of the reason why... I maybe gave it a higher score than you did is on the whole I don't like the prehistoric man storyline in science fiction do you know it's done quite a lot you know either people devolving or you know coming across this sort of prehistoric society and I usually don't like them but the way this one was done it kept me engaged and I was like oh as a sort of prehistoric story or prehistoric man's story I actually got quite emotionally invested in this one so for me that sort of brought it up the ranks because there are a lot of other shows where with the exception of maybe individual character moments I didn't get that um an example being the broken divide in Stargate yeah which from a salmon jack shipper perspective I love but the whole thing with primitive man I just I don't go in for that. Um, so I think because this one kept me engaged, I'm sort of inclined to score it higher. Yeah. In terms of the character differences, like we discussed that already. I think, again, that's personal preference. But I think that really highlights why we have this discussion and why we wanted to do this podcast to begin with. Yeah. We mentioned when we talked about why we want to do the podcast that it would be interesting to see when we disagreed. And I'm quite surprised that it was the first story. <laughs> But we're just seeing the two sides of these coins. Yeah. Do you know? I don't think either one of us is wrong. And I think both of those things are personal preference. Yeah. And that's what's great about Doctor Who is that it's entirely your personal preference, whether you like a story or not. Like everyone has their doctor and everyone has 
even like you know say 100 people have like the sixth doctor as their doctor but all, all those 100 people they're not going to, going to agree that the same story is their story for that doctor so yeah like again yeah. we we both really loved the first doctor we both really loved the, like the, his first batch of companions but your favorite story for them is probably going to be different from my favorite story for them yeah and i will give a spoiler warning this isn't my favorite story for them i just think it's a great introductory story for them yeah one thing i do want to say as well and i I wrote this down in my notes is and this is part of the pacing piece for me and it's part of keeping me engaged and I, i wanted to get your opinion on this so a classic opinion or a common opinion about classic who is that's all really jerky camera which it is a little bit um though they were praised for their camera work on doctor who yeah for the time they were you know lauded for their good camera work on doctor who um but that's you know cardboard sets and it's really jerky and whatever i actually found the fight the final fight between za and Carl. i thought it was really well lit i thought it was really well shot and if you had bought into the characters up until this point which some people maybe wouldn't have but if you had i thought it was a really engaging fight i thought they did it really really well and it didn't seem like the sort of campy fight you'd maybe expect it it's not the gorn fight no <laughs> it, it was it was actually it's shot in as real a time as like you know like real time camera as it possibly can be done the struggle between the two characters like it's not kind of over the top it's not it's two primitive men struggling to gain ascendancy and i think the where the camera transitions from watching the two of them fight up into the their close-ups on their faces and with all the uh, the fire kind of flickering in the the background, the, the, it's a really really good sequence in the story. Yeah, so that's that's why I wanted just to highlight it is that again, if you're a person who's a bit concerned about watching the classic show because oh, it's a show from the sixties, it's not very well made. This fight scene was very well done. Yeah, and again, as I said, like with the limitations for their budget and everything, that it's. Like, I know that, as, as I said, like the story isn't one of my favourites, but this section of that story is actually quite engaging. So that was An Unearthly Child, an interesting opening episode and lots of good discussion. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the story that introduced one of the Doctor's fiercest enemies, the Daleks. Now, if you would like to hear more about upcoming episodes or join in the conversation with us, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E, T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teampproductions.com See you next week. Bye bye.